has been an encouragement to you so far. Uh, John 17 is one of those passages that uh, no matter how many times we read it, there's, also, there's always something there that uh, just reminds us, encourages us of the, uh, the great joy that we have in Christ. And so as we return to John 17 tonight, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. Uh, we'll be dealing with the subject this evening of none of them is lost. None of them is lost. If you look with me at verse number 12, notice uh, the wording here. It says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. We see here a great encouragement to those who are in Christ, but we also see a very definitive line of division between one who was not one of his. He's referred to as the son of perdition. Now you'll notice that at the end of verse 12, it says both of these things are so, according to the scripture or though or so that the scripture might be fulfilled the scripture was of course fulfilled in the preservation of those who are the sheep those who are of the elect but it's also fulfilled in the destruction of a man by the name of judas or referred here as the son of perdition uh, one of the great uh facts tonight we can rest in is that all of God's word uh, will be fulfilled. Uh, now we understand that part of the fulfillment of God's word includes these things that we create we find great joy in, we rejoice in them. But even in the difficult passages where there is a declaration being made that someone or some nation or some party has been destroyed. Uh, it's difficult for our human mind to grab and to grasp that. Uh, immediately our humanity begins to desire, and I think it's, it's part of the compassion that we have for people. I, I hope we have that kind of compassion. And we wonder, it seems so unfair that God would destroy any. Why would God uh, not just save everyone? And of course, it always comes back to the reality, and it's the wrong question. Uh, the question really is, why did he choose to save any? Uh, we all should be fitted for destruction. Uh, we all should be lost. Uh, none of us tonight should be able to sing those hymns with understanding. We should not be able to sing and, and reflect on what Jesus Christ has done. Uh, that hymn we sang just before we got into the message tonight, My Song is Love Unknown, it's, a, it's seven verses, it's a long hymn, but each one of those verses builds upon each other and it, it leads us to a place where that last verse, I love what it says, I, I, stay, I would stay and sing on this great truth. I would stay right here and sing. And that is something to be worthy of our song. But we notice that Jesus spoke in the same manner as he spoke to these other disciples. And yet the light of Christ opened the eyes of some and it blinded the eyes of others. Of course, Jesus throughout this chapter has referred to himself as a shepherd and 
referred to those who are his as sheep. And we know that the story of Judas is, is that Judas uh, crept in among the flock. I carefully want to be used about the word crept. He was ordained to be the son of perdition, the one who would enter in among those disciples. But he never truly was one of the flock, even though he was counted as one of the twelve. He was not once a son of God who fell. He was never one of the sheep. He was never one of the elect. He has always and was always the son of perdition. But Christ has said here in verse 12 says that he has kept them. He has kept all of his sheep, all of his children, and he will do the same for all that believe on his name. So that we can all rejoice tonight that if you are in Christ, you will not be lost. Uh, You will not be cast off. So it's clear that Judas was among those who were not given to Christ by the Father. How do we know that? Because if he had been, Judas would have been also able to say, I am not lost. He would have been kept. But there's no evidence in Scripture to say that Judas was kept by the shepherd. Now, by way of review, I've tried to do this every week. In verses 1 through 5, we've looked at how Christ prayed for himself. Verses 6 through 19, so we're midway through here tonight, and we'll finish the rest of this next week. This is Christ praying for his disciples, specifically the 11. And he's praying that they would be preserved, uh, not removed. That's going to be a key thought tonight. The Lord does not pray for their removal. He prays for their preservation. He prays that they'd be preserved in unity, preserved in faith, preserved from evil, and be sanctified with the word of truth, which we'll deal with that next Wednesday. And then in verses 20 through 26, we see Christ prays for all the elect who believe on him. So tonight we want to have that thought in our mind, that expression, none of them is lost, as we look at these verses, and we'll start in verse number 11. Uh, You'll notice here the Lord says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. Now, of course, we realize that when this is uh, being penned or as we're reading it, he is still in the world. He is still, uh, has still has on that, uh, he's taken on that robe of flesh. He's still here in his humanity and he's looking into the future. And he's speaking, though, of his approaching departure as if it had already happened. Notice he says that I am, I am no more in the world. Well, he still is bodily, but he's, he's looking down the pages of time. Uh, he would soon die. Uh, he would soon depart out of this world. And he had walked, of course, in this world for uh, just a little over 30 years. And so it's an unfriendly world. It's a world that's hostile. It's a world that is difficult. Um, It can only be described as a world of unbelief. Now, when we read John 15, you might have noticed that in verse number 18, Jesus kind of made mention of what we're talking about tonight. He said in John 15, he says, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, 
The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, Jesus says, because they know not him that sent me. So Jesus, in the, the chapters leading up to this great prayer, he had already told his disciples, listen, uh, you are going to endure difficulties. You are going to endure afflictions. You're going to be hated for my name's sake. And he, of course, in our text, he goes on and he says, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And he's saying, I'm coming to you. I'm going to the Father. He's, he's going to enter into, uh, into glory, and he's going to sit down on the right hand of his Father. And of course, that happened just as he said it would. But his disciples would remain here. They would remain here. They would endure what he said they would endure. They would preach the gospel and be exposed to sin, to evil, to temptation, to hardship. But Jesus does not pray to remove them. But notice he says there in verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name. Keep them. Preserve them. Protect them. Through your name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Our Lord's prayer here is that the Father would protect and guard them. Hedge them in is the idea. Keep them faithful. Now, he's not, he, he elaborates on this. He's not just talking about uh, just uh, protect them and put them behind a stone wall. But rather what he's saying is keep them, not only preserve them, but keep them faithful. Keep them faithful to the gospel. Keep them faithful. Be in unity with him and with one another. He wanted them to be unified. Keep them in thine own name whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are. Be one in love, be one in purpose, be one in message, be one in, in a greater way than we can even imagine. That one day, and he mentions this down in verse 23 of John 17, when he says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. His prayer was that they would certainly be kept. I love the way the Geneva Bible puts this. It says that the Lord prays that his people may peaceably agree, be joined together in one that the Godhead, as the Godhead is one, so that they may be of one mind and one consent together. There really is a beautiful picture here about being one. Jesus used that expression, I and my Father are one. And then that leads us to verse 12. 
Again, he's speaking as if it's already happened. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. Now, we know the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, of course, is the surety. He is the the one who is the guarantor of our salvation, of our keeping. Hebrews 7.22 tells us, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. In John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, he says he is the good shepherd. He's the shepherd of all the sheep. And Jesus is praying here and reminding that not one of those apostles, not one of those disciples that were given to him by the Father can ever be lost. Jesus declaratively and definitively says, none of them is lost, but or except the son of perdition. He's the only one of these disciples, these that he have given me, who is lost. John 6, 37 uh, tells us all that the Father giveth. We've looked at this verse hundreds of times. All that the Father giveth me shall come. Not may come, not hope to come, may consider coming. They shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. None of them is lost. Friends, it's impossible for one that God the Father has given to the Son to ever be lost. You and I can take great assurance in that, especially when we get to the end of this chapter, when he starts and he turns his prayer away from the disciples in a way, and he turns it to all who will believe. All who will believe can never be lost, but here he deals with these disciples specifically who will not. Not only would they not be lost, Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them. They will be kept from the evil one. More importantly, they'll be kept from eternal ruin. Now, we must never take this passage as saying that they will never be, they'll never experience harm, they'll never experience trial, they'll never experience suffering. What they'll never lose, what they're being kept from, is first and foremost eternal ruin. That's what they're being kept from. Although they're going to be preserved in a way in this world. Ultimately, we know that it does not mean that they will not die. Ultimately, every one of those disciples died, and ultimately, every one of us will die unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But Judas, this son of perdition, as we mentioned in the introduction, by his own choice, make no mistake about it, by his own choice and his own willful apostasy is lost. Now, Judas was fulfilling the very scripture that was written about him. He's fulfilling Scripture. But Judas was never one of his. Judas was never never belonged to Christ. If one person who was given by the Father to the Son was lost, then, then God would be a liar. He would have to undo everything he said. But Jesus very clearly says, none of them are lost but the Son of Perdition. He was a reprobate from the beginning. He never was one of the fathers. In that chapter we just read in John 6 and verse 64, 
Jesus says, but there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. This was not a mystery, folks. No, at no point in time was Jesus taken off guard that Judas was the betrayer. It did not come to him as a surprise when Judas showed up in the garden to take him. He knew who he was. He knew what he was there for. And Jesus was fulfilling the Scripture also, just as Judas was. He goes on in that chapter in John 6, in verse 65, And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Now the it there is a reference to ability or willingness. In other words, no man comes unless he's given the ability and made willing by the Father. From that time, now notice this, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. You realize Judas was not the only one who at one point appeared to be a disciple and walked away. There were a lot of people who identified with being disciples of Jesus who, as his sayings got harder and harder, they turned and never came back again. And Jesus used this opportunity to turn to the, to the twelve. Notice it says, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Simon Peter, of course, understands that Jesus Christ, where else would we go? And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, we studied that on our Sunday morning exposition of Matthew. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? I don't know if we meditate and think about that question long enough. Peter says, Lord, we know who you are. Can you imagine what the look on their face? I don't want to add to the scripture. Can you imagine the look on their face when he looks at the 12 and he says, have not I chosen 12 of you and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him being one of the 12. Now we're reading that and we have the benefit of having to explain to us. But in this account in John, Jesus didn't say it's Judas, but we're told here's who he was speaking about. One who was lost. One who is still to this day, we have no reason to believe scripturally, is anything but an everlasting fire. So none of them are lost. One of these great mysteries of the way God works. I can't give proper credit to who gave this quote because I could not find it. And maybe it's, maybe it's not that original of a quote, but wicked men, Judas would be an example here, wicked men do what their evil hearts devise. But in all things, they fulfill the purpose of our sovereign Lord. Man is still doing whatever his evil heart thinks and plans. But even when he thinks his evil heart is doing something, he's fulfilling the purposes of God. So even in Judas's betrayal, even though he's the son of perdition, the one who is lost, he's fulfilling Scripture. 
Now that helps us, folks, when we look out into the landscape of the world and we say, how can this evil be doing anything good? Because even evil is fulfilling the purposes of God. Now it doesn't make God the author of sin, but even the wickedness in this world, no matter how wicked devices man plans, they are fulfilling the purposes of a sovereign Lord. It's a difficult concept, but that's scriptural. You can see that all throughout the Bible, that that's what's happening, that even in the wicked things we see throughout the Old Testament, the things that make us sit back and say, how can this be good? And God's sovereign purposes are still being accomplished. Back to John 17, verse 13. Jesus now again speaking in future tense, and now come I to thee. And these things I speak in the world that they, those that you've given me in this context, the apostles, might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, give or take about six weeks from when this, we're reading this, when Jesus is lifting up this prayer, is about when Jesus would leave. About six weeks from, from here. He would leave the apostles. He would later ascend to the Father. And the disciples are going to be without his bodily presence. It'd be unthinkable to them that this Jesus who's been with them all of this time is now bodily going to be removed from them. Spurgeon said about this passage when Jesus speaks in the future tense, he said Christ was looking beyond all that was to happen to him before he could return to his glory. And as he saw his father waiting to welcome him, he cried, and now come I to thee. And I like the application he put here. These also might be the appropriate words in the mouth of a dying believer. And now come I to thee. We may not leave this world tonight. We may not leave this world tomorrow. But the believer can have on his or her lips, Lord, I come unto thee. That's, that's, the, that's the, the tone of what Jesus is saying here. He, he's looking down and he's, he's looking through the pages. And he says, these things I speak in the world. Notice how he says this. I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Can there be a greater prayer than Jesus saying that my disciples might have, notice he doesn't just say joy of any sort, he said that they might have my joy. Folks, can there be anything greater than the joy of Christ? The very sense here is, is that in this prayer, he, he has spoken these things in, in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, and he's putting forth this prayer that the joy of his people might not be diminished by his going from them. In other words, he knows this is going to be an event that's going to lead them to discouragement. But he says in all this, I pray that my joy would remain in them. That even what will appear to be the worst event in their life that they've seen, that my joy would still be there. I 
this joy is rejoicing in not just in a general term, but rejoicing in the work that Jesus would do. His work of redemption. His exaltation back to the Father. His now living to intercede for them. And ultimately, His return. Folks, one of the great things that you and I have can have the joy of Christ in our life is the reality of His return. Again, when we were reading John 15, you can see the parallels here. In John 15, verse 11, Jesus clearly says why He's speaking these things. He says, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You understand the personal, the personal uh, words that are being expressed here. He's talking about the great love of himself laying down his life for his friends. It's kind of hard to imagine being a friend with Jesus. You know, how many times over the years have, I, have we sang that song, or maybe you over the years, Jesus, friend of sinners. And have you ever stopped and considered the joy of that truth? A friend of sinners. That's what Jesus is. He's a friend of sinners. He says, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. In this wonderful prayer, this wondrous intercessory prayer, the words of the Lord is not that we just have joy or that His disciples would have joy, but that they would have Christ's joy. But that word fulfilled, it doesn't, it doesn't mean I hope they just have a little bit of my joy. To be fulfilled means that they have it in abundance. Listen, folks, I know if, if we allow our circumstances to drive us, if you allow your circumstances in this life to drive you, you will never be joyful. But if your true joy is found in Christ, you will always find a reason to be joyful. What Jesus is telling them, he's, he, remember, He's beginning to tell them now the very dark things that are coming, and He's talking about joy on the very doorstep of what is going to appear to be the worst of circumstances. But he says, I want you to remain joy. I want you to remain joyous, joyful. His prayer is that his people, especially here the disciples, when they see all this happen, that they would remain filled with joy. Now he doesn't just say it as a cliche. Look at verse 14. He says, I have given them thy word. Now the sense here is more than just preaching the word to them. He had given the word to many. Okay? Jesus had preached. We, don't, we can't even estimate how many thousands of people Jesus preached to. So this sense here is more than just, hey, I preach to him every day. Notice the use of the word give. I have given them thy word. I have given them by opening their heart. I've opened their heart to the word. To not only hear it, but to understand it, to receive it. 
to embrace the Word of God in faith and love. Every single time that Jesus dealt with His disciples, He was granting to them an understanding. That's why He started with very small truths and He worked His way up so that they would understand the Word that He was given to them. It, the Bible talks about having the Word of God engrafted into us. Being changed into the likeness of the Word. That's the sense here. It's, it's not just, hey, I preached at them. And by the way, anybody can preach at someone. Um, it, to, 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 to preach at you or to preach to you doesn't mean that you're embracing it or it's engrafting in your heart. I mean, there are people who've heard thousands of sermons and they still sit unconverted. They still sit in the same state that they were. But He changed them. He gave them the Word. And the world hath hated them. See, Jesus already knows that as a result of them giving, being given the Word, the world hates them. But look what he says, because they are not of the world. That's a strange thing to say when they're in the world, isn't it? They are not of the world. Well, friends, you realize tonight that if you're a child of God, that you really are not of this world either. You're, you're a pilgrim passing through. Now, you have to live in this world until your time is up, but you are not of this world. As a believer, as one who is not lost, one who is being kept by the preservation of the Word Himself, by the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not of the world. But notice, He even associates Himself with these sinners that He's friends with, even as I am not of the world. These disciples who are not of the world are just like me. I'm not of the world either. What a glorious truth that is. Now what made the difference? The Word being in their heart. It made them to have another spirit. They're not just merely flesh and blood. They're not just religious professors. They're hated by the people of this world. Now, the reality is this. As believers, we're born in this world. We live in this world. And ultimately, again, unless the Lord Jesus comes, we die in this world just like everybody else. Believers and unbelievers alike are born, they live, and they die. The difference is the unbeliever is really of this world. The believer is not of this world. Our conduct, our attitude, our conversations, we're not supposed to walk like a world we're not part of. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be peculiar people. And the disciples were supposed to be like their Lord But then notice he says very specifically, I pray not. I have, I, well, I have a lot underlined in my Bible. That's something that I do. Some people don't and that's okay, but I have lots of marks. But I specifically have the word not circled. I pray not. It's emphatic that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Now, to the world, that seems strange. If you're not of this world, you don't really live for this world, you don't look like this world, you don't act like this world, why would your God want you to stay? 
Well, that's exactly what he's praying. Although they're not of the world, they've been told they're going to be hated, they're going to be persecuted, ultimately going to be killed by the enemies in this world. Jesus does not pray to the Father to take them out of the world. Why? Because they have a work to do. Later on in John 20, verse 21, I'll just give you that verse because we could, we could go on a, a, another whole direction here. But in John 20, 21, he says, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Jesus was basically telling them, As the Father sent me into the world, now I'm sending you into the world to fulfill and to carry out a work to preach the gospel. Why do the disciples preach the gospel? Why do we preach the gospel? It's for His glory. It's for the salvation. It is the means in which God has used to draw and bring His elect unto Himself. It's through the preaching of the Word. There are people who, again, accuse and say, if you believe in all this election, then why preach? Because the Bible says that's God's appointed means to draw the elect to Himself. Is the preaching of the Word. That has nothing to do with, if you believe in election, that's what makes it glorious that we get to preach the gospel and have a part, or we might say a privilege, of seeing God's elect come to him. That's what they're going to do. They had a work to do. But they also would be here to provide comfort and edification of the church that remain in this world. Ultimately, they will be taken to glory in his own time. Now, I realize that sometimes this gets a little bit backwards with people. But do you know how much of an encouragement and how much edification you can receive when things are so difficult and trials and afflictions? Do you know how much edification and encouragement you can get from the church when you come and you hear the word of God being preached and proclaimed? But do you know what we're tempted to do? We have something come and afflict us and instead of fleeing to the church house to be able to hear the word of God where you're going to be the greatest encouragement, we do the opposite and we try to stay in the world and let the world comfort you. Listen, when you're going through a struggle, you should be running as fast as you can to where the church meets because it's the word that's going to encourage you. It's a, it's a strange phenomenon. But I can tell you from our own personal life, there have been times we've gone through deep valleys and it was being with God's people and hearing the word of God proclaimed that brought comfort. No other person could bring comfort, but being with God's people and hearing the word preached, whoever the preacher was, brought great encouragement. So he's praying for deliverance in a sense, but not deliverance in the way that we would think. Again, referencing the Geneva Bible notes. He shows what manner of deliverance he means. Not that they should be in no danger. In other words, he's not praying God keep them from any danger. But that they being preserved from all might prove by experience that the doctrine of salvation is true which they received at his mouth to deliver to others. In other words, as they lived in this world and they preached the gospel, they would prove by their 
willingness to preach and to go forth and that people were being saved, that the doctrine of salvation is trustworthy and it is true. But then he says specifically, I pray you don't take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them. There's that word again. Keep. Preserve them from the evil. He prays that they might be kept from evil or we, it's not a harm to the Scripture to, or to be kept from the evil one. To be kept from Satan. Honestly, the great prayer of a believer, I, I, I kind of struggled with this today, so bear with me a minute. Oftentimes when things get really rough for a believer in this life, it, it, happens, it happens when people get older. And I think it's because we think more about death being closer. But you know, sometimes we pray this way. I, I, just wish, I just wish that God would just take me from this world. That's really not the appropriate prayer. The appropriate prayer is not to pray for death or to be removed, but be delivered from the common ills or the common evil of mankind. In other words, keep me from these things. Keep me, deliver me from sin. Deliver me from the evil one. The point here is, is oftentimes when we see things happening in this world, we just want to kind of hole up somewhere and we want to say, okay, I'm just going to stay here and just wait till Jesus comes. And that's not really the way the Christian's supposed to live. You see, we are not of the world, but we are to be in the world. We are to be proclaimers of the gospel. And we are, we should be praying. Look, it's, it's okay to pray that, hey, I, I don't want to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel, but I also, I want, to, I want to be faithful in the calling God's given to me. The evil influences is what Jesus is praying that they be preserved from. You see, it's especially against evil we need to be delivered from. You realize Jesus doesn't pray here. Again, He doesn't pray to remove them. And He doesn't pray, hey, Lord, can we make a place where we put all the religious people and just shut them away from the world? You know, one of the great, quote-unquote, theologians and one of the great persons that we quote often is a man by the name of Martin Luther. And you know, Martin Luther thought at one time that what all religious people should do is be a monk and be holed up in a monastery somewhere. That's not what believers are supposed to do. We're not supposed to be shut away from the world. We're, we're actually, we're supposed to be out in the world. We are to be salt. We are to be light. And pray that we would be kept from the evil one and from the evil influences of this world. That's what your prayer should be every day. Keep me from the evil influences. Now think about this for a moment. Think about how dreadful it would be if God's people are overcome by the world. Christ simply prayed that His Father would keep them from the evil that's what he prayed for. 
Spurgeon also said this, the sustaining of a saint in this life to sustain him or her is a constant miracle which can only be wrought by God himself. The fact that you and I as believers in this evil, wicked world are sustained is an absolute miracle. And you're not the one sustaining yourself. You're being sustained by a work of God. And then Jesus repeats what he said in verse 14. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The Lord repeats the words he said in John 17, 14, where they are given this reason why the world hates you, why the world hates the, the apostles. He's praying for divine protection from the evil one those that would hate Jesus Christ and his disciples. You know, against all of the foolishness of the prosperity gospel, I can't find a single passage in Scripture where Christ prays that his people, his disciples, would be rich or be great. I can't find a single instance where he said, I want them to be rich in this world and great in this world but I do see him repetitively praying that they would be kept from sin and kept from the evil one. I see Jesus praying for strength for his people. I see Jesus praying that they would be brought safely to heaven, but I don't see him praying that we would be the most prosperous people in the world. You know, it really is an abomination to say that what Jesus wants for your life is for you to be rich and great in this world. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus is praying in John 17. He's actually saying, I want you just to protect them from the vicious world that they're going to live in. But I do find it very interesting that he didn't pray for that removal. He doesn't even pray that they would escape the rage of men because they were going to do a great work. You and I today, we are recipients of the apostles' doctrine, those who carried forth the doctrine of Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming the same doctrine in which the apostles preached. We are going to pass through this world. We are going to have to live in this world. But we are promised that if we are one of his, none of them are lost. Folks, if you feel out of place in this world, you're supposed to. <laughs> if you feel like I don't fit in at work, I don't fit in at school, you're not supposed to. It's like, why can't I get comfortable here? Because this world is not your home you're not supposed to be comfortable. As a matter of fact, if you're comfortable, you're probably too much like the world. That's why you're comfortable. How come when I take a stand for the things of God, I feel like I'm hated? Because you are. How come when I stand up and I try to claim Christ, people despise me? Because they do not know Christ and they despise Him and because they despise Him, they despise you. But the promise of being kept, the promise of being preserved, 
the promise of safe passage that's guaranteed from this sinful, wicked world to glory one day ought to be a source of great joy for us. You get a great promise that all of the Word of God will be fulfilled. And we can take great joy in that. Next week, if you want to read ahead a little bit, we're only going to be covering verses 17 through 19. And we'll deal with the Lord's next prayer, part of the prayer. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we'll look at that next week. Let's pray together before we have our closing hymn. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your word has encouraged us as it always does. And Father, even if only just a bit tonight, I pray that our hearts have been encouraged that as we live in this present evil world, you have not left us alone. And Father, may we think upon often that if we are in Christ Jesus, we will never be lost. Father, help us to remain faithful to our calling. Help us to remain strengthened in our walk and in our faith. Help us to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel. And Lord, we pray as our Lord prayed for us, not that we would be removed, but that we would be kept in this world. May the gospel go forth. May it draw your people unto you. And may the Holy Spirit of God do his mighty work that only he can do. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll finish by singing the hymn 201. 201, there is a redeemer.